this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew Pack. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We will be in the letter to the Hebrews today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll be using it a lot. It's over there. You can pick one up. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. Uh, honestly, it's a paperback. It's not a big deal. Just take it with you. Uh, it's awesome. There are the words of life. Um, we're going to start with prayer, but I'd also like to say we're going to pray. We'll take a moment to pray. Uh, as a church, we've got three weddings happening this weekend. Uh, one couple got married on Friday, and two couples I got to do engagement counseling for are both being married today. And in fact, I'm going to run out of here and go do one of those weddings, so it's a doubleheader for me. So praise the Lord. But uh, it is a gift that these folks get to respond to the reality of Jesus with their lives and service to each other. So uh, let's, let's, as we pray for our time together, also remember them and not just their wedding day, but the marriage that they're, they're walking into. So let's pray. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people, Lord God, and we need you. Uh, I pray, Lord God, that we would see the reality of you, Jesus, the reality of your cross, the reality of your body broken and bloodshed for our sins to make us one with you, to give us life in you, and to give us life, Jesus. Lord, we were lost and now we were found. We are found, God. We couldn't do it on our own There was nothing in us to be able to come to you, but you loved us first, Jesus. You died for us to save us for your glory and for our joy. May we live the life and in the freedom you've given us. Help us to know you and love you and serve you today. Uh, I just pray for the, the wonderful couples that are getting together this weekend, Lord God, as they become one, that they would reflect the beauty of your glory to the world that the world would see their marriages and know that you are real because of the way they love each other, because of the way they serve each other, because of the way that you've loved them and served them and they live in response to that reality. Jesus, I just pray for this time as we look at the reality that you are the answer to a broken world. You are God's answer to a broken world. That the things that are just of me would be forgotten that would just float away, but the things that are you, Jesus, the things that point to the cross, the things that point to your glory, the things that point to your throne, that those would be uh, logs on the fire of our worship, and that we live passionate lives, not just this morning, but for the rest of the week, that this would be the ignition point for a life lived in passion uh, for you and for, our, for your glory and for our joy. Help us, Jesus. We can only do this with the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Uh, and for our joy and for your glory, uh, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, starting verse 5 today. Um, one of the amazing things that I think we need to be careful of, and one of the amazing things that's happening here in Hebrews, the, the letter to the Hebrews isn't afraid to go to hard places. Uh, it, it's scripture that's not afraid to deal with, with the hard stuff of life. And, and I think there is a tendency at times, because we uh, can be people pleasers, to be honest with you, Uh, that we try and sort of trim the fat on the scriptures. We kind of Facebook eyes Jesus and try and put him in the best light possible. And we try and, let's not talk about the hard stuff. Let's not deal with the hard stuff of the cross. Let's not deal with suffering. Let's not deal with sin. Let's not deal with blood. Let's not deal with these things because this might be off-putting for people and we want them to meet Jesus so desperately. The problem is, is that the thing that Seattle needs and the thing that you and I need is not just the amazing, joyful things of the Bible which we embrace and love, but also where the Bible will take us to the hardest, darkest parts of life because sometimes that's exactly where we need Jesus to meet us, is in the hardest, darkest, emptiest, sickest moments of our life. Because in Christ in those moments, when we're not afraid to shy away from these things, there's life. 
There's, there's life. Okay? And so as we do that, we're going to see the author of Hebrews look right in the face of this huge problem. And the huge problem is, is that Jesus is on the throne ruling and reigning. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that sometimes when I look outside my own front window, it doesn't look like that on my block. When I'm driving home on 99 in Broadview where I live, it doesn't always look like he is on the throne. And the author of Hebrews is just going to embrace that and look at it and say, I, I know. I know. You can't see the kingdom as it will be. But what you can see is Jesus. What you can see is Jesus. And so his answer to the problem of a broken world is seeing the, the kingdom, the kingdom that is now and that, that our church is an, uh, is an embassy for that kingdom. We get to be an outpost for the kingdom of God here and now, and we get to be a foretaste for that kingdom. But there's a kingdom that's coming. But it's not just the kingdom that's coming, it's the king who's coming. And then when we look at the king who's coming, we see that God's answer to a broken world is Jesus. God's answer to a broken world is Jesus. Let's go ahead and dig on in. Starting in verse 5. Now, it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So, um, if this is your first time in Hebrews, your first time with us, he's been comparing something. And that's, that's Jesus and angels and Jesus and everything else. And that's pretty much what he's going to do throughout all of Hebrews. Now, what he didn't do was say, uh, angels are bad and Jesus is good. He said, angels are awesome. Uh, they're ministers who've been sent to serve those who are being saved. But that and any other spiritual experience is not, not the thing that takes primacy. That's not the ultimate thing in our life. The ultimate thing is Jesus, and he's going to spend time organizing things. Jesus is the better, fill in the blank. Again and again and again, that is the repeated theme of Hebrews. Jesus is the better, fill in the blank. And we've just come off this idea of angels and how Jesus is better than angels. He doesn't say angels are bad. He just says Jesus is better, and that's the reality of life. There's a lot of things that are good. They're just not as good as Jesus, Okay? So that's the context there. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The world to come, of which we are speaking. He's talking about what we'll call the not yet kingdom. Okay? Uh, if you're a real nerd, you might be interested in George Allen Ladd, a mid-century theologian who's dead and is awesome. And he coined a phrase that's called, now and not yet kingdom. Uh, that idea that Jesus came and inaugurated in his life and his death and his resurrection, the kingdom of God. And so we can say the kingdom of God is among us, or the kingdom of God is in your face when you're here with us. The kingdom of God is now, it's present, and yet, it's not yet. Uh, the, the fullness of that kingdom has not yet come. Uh, the wiping of every tear from every eye has not yet come. The restoration of all things. The fact that I'm saved, what I love is that Paul will do this in three tenses. You are saved, because Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, died for your sins if you're a Christian, and there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You belong to him, he belongs to you, and you're his forever, praise the Lord. You're saved. But then he says you're being saved. Well, what do you mean I'm being saved? Well, yeah, I still sin. Still broken. Still have things, and I'm like, come on, man. Get it together. That again? That one again? And yet Jesus is there and he has grace and he's dealing with me and he's dealing with you and he's sanctifying us and he's going to complete it. So we're in process. And you will be saved. It is hard to imagine this, but there will be a time when you will have no sin. There will be a time when Jesus is 
naturally the object of your affection, where Jesus is the thing that, you're, that is just front and center all the time. And at, at that point in time, he will have stripped away all the other distractions and bright, shiny uh, foil uh, that distracts us, all the blinking lights of society. You won't even think about your telephone again or what app you've got or how good you're doing at the game because Jesus will be the object of your affection. And you won't have to feel guilty that you watched Netflix instead of read your Bible because you have a phone that you can do both on, right? But that world to come is where he's putting his focus. Hey, there's, there's this thing that's coming where death, which was defeated on the cross, will be no more. Where the suffering that was dealt with, the cup that was drank, the cup of wrath that Jesus drank, the restoration that he did on the cross, all of these things that were inaugurated on the cross in his life will come to fruition in the kingdom when it comes. It has been testified somewhere. Now, this is interesting. Because he quotes verbatim scripture. So there's one of two things happening here. He's either being really humble and saying, it's quoted somewhere, and I'm not going to rub in your face that it's Psalm 8. Or, and I think this is actually what's happening, I think Hebrews is a sermon transcript. Chapter 13 says it's a brief word of exhortation. This is our sermon model. And I think uh, as he's preaching it or whatever, uh, he doesn't go to Psalm 8. He just knows it. And, And I guess I can speak of this as a preacher. There's times when you're preaching, and I don't have a scripture on my outline, and yet I'm preaching, and the Holy Spirit brings something to mind. I'm like, oh, man, God's got this for the church today, and it goes into the sermon outline, insert here. So perhaps that's even what's happening here. It said somewhere, could be Psalm 7, could be Psalm 8, could be Psalm 9, but then he begins to quote it. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And then he skips a line in Psalm 8 and goes right to putting everything in subjection under his feet. The other line is awesome and fits right in with the theme, but he doesn't quote it. And that's why I think it's off the cuff. Okay. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he's even saying, hey, there's this promise. Many, 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 if not most, of the Psalms have a promise in them, a messianic flavor. And when I say messianic flavor, the Messiah, which is a word that we don't always use, (coughs) Messiah means anointed, Christ means anointed. So we say Messiah, but we use Christ because that's how we translate it and what we use and what we do. Uh, But it's even in his name, right? So there's this promise that the one's going to come and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And the Psalms talk about this guy over and over and over again. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 23. There's all these things. And he's saying, hey, this is talking about him. And him is Jesus. Okay? This name here, the son of man that you care for him. This is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Uses it over and over and over and over again. Because it's here in the Psalms and it's also in Daniel. The promised one who's going to come and put things back the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is saying, when the son of man, the son of man, right here, pay attention. I'm the one who's come to restore everything. And the author of Hebrews is embracing that. The son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. The God of the universe entered into human history. Philippians 2 says he sets aside his divine... He sets aside the thing that is his place in heaven to come to earth 
to save a people for the glory of God and so that sinners can have life. He did not do that because you're awesome. He did that because he is awesome. He did not do that because you're an awesome statistician or you uh, said a code word. He did that because he's gracious and he's displaying his grace to Seattle and to the world through Anchor Church and the other churches in Seattle who love Jesus and the other churches around the world because he's good and he's glorious. And when you see that, when you see his glory and the weight of his beauty, that is joy, right? So we get to enjoy him in his glory and his beauty and he came to display it to the world. And for some reason, he's invited us into that. Praise the Lord. Drink that in. You didn't do anything. There's nothing you did to get in the family of God. He did it all. And when he did that, he set aside his divine rights and he enters into human history. God himself. I mean, it's so confusing. You see it in the Gospels all the time. They're confused. It says that he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped in Philippians 2. I take this to mean that when God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit hatched a plan in eternity past to save sinners, Jesus never in there says, What? A cross? don't you guys know I'm the second member of the ontological trinity? Uh, I don't go to crosses. I don't go into human history. It says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I take that to mean when they said, this is how we're going to bring glory to God in the world, and this is how we're going to save sinners, Jesus said, I'm in. Bring the Father glory? Yes. Save sinners? Yes. Yes. Jesus said yes. Now, what I think is amazing here, what is man that you are mindful of him. Who am I that God even cares? Who am I that God even cares? We get hung up on how important we are, and the psalmist looks at the reality of God and just says, who am I that you even care? I think it's why Jesus says things like when they come back, when the disciples come back from casting out demons, they're really excited. Hey, we've been casting out demons. It was really awesome, and there was cool stuff that happened, and everyone wanted to throw us a parade, and they were excited that we were there, and we saw a lot of power and miracles and things happen. It was so cool, Jesus. What does Jesus say to them? He doesn't say, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Great, guys. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Don't rejoice that this is happening. Rejoice that your name's in the book of life. Your joy flows from the fact that God himself came to save you from yourself and to make you his, and you didn't do anything to earn any of it. Praise the Lord. Now, he's not saying, hey, don't cast out demons and don't pray for people and don't be excited when God does cool stuff in your life. He says, let's just keep the priorities straight. Let's keep it straight that the reason we're doing anything that we do is in this free response to the fact that your name is written in the book of life. And that gets a little lost on us because we actually live in a country where most of us, uh, if, you, if you were born in the States or you applied for, you're a citizen. You're a citizen somewhere, typically. Um, back then, if, you, if your name wasn't written in the book, you weren't a citizen of anything, anywhere. You were a nobody and everybody knew it. And there'd be a book in town that had your name in it if you were a somebody. And so he's saying, hey, you're not a somebody because you're doing anything. You're a somebody because Jesus died for you. How does that change our approach to life? I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of a time uh, in technology and in history where people are trying harder to let everybody know they're a somebody. It's, it's hard to find a time. We have the technology. We can, we can rebuild it. We can do it now. 
where we can live in a world where you can make sure people in Guangzhou know you're a somebody if they're following you on Facebook. I'm not saying don't use Facebook. I'm just saying if your heart is to make sure that some guy knows you're a somebody, you're going to get lost in there. You're not a somebody because somebody likes the funny comments you made. You're a somebody because Jesus Christ died to save sinners among whom we are the foremost. And that's freedom. If you believe that, you can use Facebook with freedom. I don't even like the thing. I'm just telling you. You can use the internet with freedom. I'm a letter. I have a paper calendar. Hate the thing. Anyways, enough about me. So what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Wait a second. Wait a second. So he, got, he, he came as a baby, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. Uh, we're going to look at this, and it's going to be awesome. But it's, Jesus has rights over everything as God, but as this anointed one, as God's chosen one, as the one who came, as the one who came, who suffered, who died for the glory of God, he's worthy to be crowned as, and anointed as Messiah. So he's both ruler of everything as God, and then he's ruler of everything as God's chosen one, Messiah. And that's what he's emphasizing here. And this, I think, is one of the most important things to understand. Jesus will emphasize his care for people over and over and over again. There's... Flowers. The flowers do their flower thing and God takes care of them. What about you? Right? You heard that one? It's one of the parables. And I think what's really important here is sometimes we have this mentality that says, well, I have trouble, and this might be you, and if, you're, if, you're, if you don't know Jesus and you're here, we're so glad you're here, and all we want you to do is know Jesus, Right? Like, I'm not here to, to tweak your politics. I'm not here to tweak your behavior. I'm not here to tweak your recycling. I'm not here to tweak the car you drive. I don't, I'm not here. I don't care about any of those things. I care that you would know and love Jesus. We're so glad you're here. And I think for me, this kind of objection, though I don't know that I would have fully articulated it, it would have been one of my big ones when I didn't know who he was. And it goes something like this. Well, either God is all-powerful and he doesn't care, or when you look at this broken world in which we live, that is. Either God's all-powerful and he doesn't care, or God cares, but he's not powerful enough to do something about it. Have you heard this one? I think this one actually lives, can be articulated by philosophy majors sometimes. It honestly can like live in our hearts, uh, even though we, can't, we don't necessarily have those words to say, oh, that, this, is the, this, is the, this is the framework in which I'm thinking. You just look at the broken world and say, Why? Why? Now, this is why it's important that we don't skip the hard parts of the Bible because the Bible actually deals with some of those whys, right? I mean, just on the, on the, on the, the straight surface level, and this won't necessarily suffice, is the understanding that God made everything good and we broke it, right? That we're living in the mess that we made, that, that human beings made, that human beings continue to make. Half of the reason we live in the world in which we live is because people care about number one. Because we're all playing king of the mountain and we're willing to push anybody else down the mountain to be number one. We want to be in the center of everything. Guess what? That keeps breaking everything. That's called selfishness. Right? Look, you got to love your number one. You got to love yourself first before you can love anybody else. Okay? Now, the other thing, the other thing in there is what the author of Hebrews is wanting to be really clear is that it can't be that he doesn't care. He's, he's going to look at some hard stuff in just a second and he's setting us up. What is, 
what does man you care for him? So he's going he's gonna to cut the argument off because essentially the argument comes down to he, he cares but he can't or he, he cares but he can't, he can't but he cares. And here's the problem with that arrangement is that it's all in our terms. One of the greatest things, one of the greatest books that no one wants to go through, which is amazing and very helpful, is Ecclesiastes. And one of the things that he's going to continue to reiterate, yeah, I know you look at the world and it's a Bon Jovi song and the good die young and the, the old get, the, the nasty young guys get to be old, nasty, rich guys. I know, but you don't see how God sees. And what God's not going to do is just put a nice bow on it all. He's not going to put a nice bow on it all and just be like, this is the reason for the problem of evil. This is, this is exactly why it happens. But I know it can't be that he does not care. Why do I know that it cannot be that he does not care? We broke and he's going to fix it. That's how I know. That Jesus Christ enters into human history, enters into the mess, enters into the suffering, enters into the problem, and walks among us in an effort to restore it all, an effort that is not even an effort because it's going to happen and he's going to do it and it's going to happen so I can look to the thing that he's done. He's come into human history and he's done this thing and I can also look to the fact that he is going to wipe every tear from every eye so it can't be that he doesn't care but he's working restoration and all of it but the reality is I can't see how God sees and when I play God, I get confused but the answer cannot be that he doesn't care and Romans 8 is going to tell us Somehow, somehow, and again, let's not put a bow on it, okay? You know what I mean by that? Let's not just reduce the, the problem of suffering to something, a one-line little off-the-cuff sentence, because that that's, that's nice when you're not suffering. It's really hard for people when you're actually in the midst of their suffering. Your answer is not to come and give them a bow. Well, if you had more faith, wrong, wrong. Who's... Why is this guy blind? Is it his parents' sin or his sin? Neither. He was in a broken world. A world that God is going to glorify himself by fixing. He's going to wipe every tear from every eye. And somehow, somehow, without putting a bow on it, Romans 8 tells us it's going to be better for having been so bad. For having been so horrible. And that the earth and ourselves as people who know the kingdom's coming, we long for it. We want Jesus come back this afternoon, for goodness sakes. Stop the madness. He keeps going. Just because we can't see him moving doesn't mean he's not moving. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. He's ruling and reigning right now as we speak. Jesus is on the throne. He is not sleeping. He's not absent. He's not absent. He's not 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 aware of what's happening in your life right now. And this is a bit of a sneak preview. But Hebrews is also going to tell us he had to be made like his brothers so he could be a faithful high priest. He's attempted in every way but knew no sin. That not only is he God who's aware in a, in a, in a like mental capacity for using human words to attach to the ineffable God, right? But he's actually been here. His friends have died. He has suffered. He has been rejected. He has been beaten. He has been crucified. 
So I can't tell you the bow answer to suffering. What I can tell you is he knows. And I can tell you if I'm visiting you or you're visiting me in my hospital bed, I'm not going to come and tell you you should have more faith. But I will tell you about Jesus. I'll tell you about God who became a man. I'll tell you about God who's going to restore all things. I'll tell you that death will be no more. I'll tell you that sickness will be no more. I'll tell you he's going to do it. And I'll tell you he's not, not in the room. He's not absent. You're not, you didn't get sick on the swing shift. Right? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Nothing. But here's, I think, good news. Keep reading. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's the king, but it doesn't always look like it. And he's acknowledging that. He's looking that reality right in the face and saying, I know. I mean, this, is, this guy's probably living between, uh, I think this is written between the persecution and the destruction of, the second destruction of the temple, which means he's living knee-deep in chaos. You can do your homework on all that stuff. All you need to know, this guy's living knee-deep in chaos, and people are dying because they love Jesus. And he's saying Jesus is better than that. Jesus is ultimate, even in the midst of the chaos. Right? So this isn't like, he's not like a theology prof somewhere safe. Right? The end of the book is like, Timothy got sprung from jail. Woo! Good times. Right? You know it's real when you're there. Right? Timothy somehow gets out of jail. Which, by the way, as a side note, is one of my favorite things. Because the last letter we get from Paul is, Timothy, buck up, keep going. And then we, what do we see about Timothy? He bucked up and he kept going. He went to jail. Praise the Lord. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him. At present, we do not see everything subject, in subjection to him. But we see him. Who? Who is him? Jesus. For a little while was made lower than the angels. Remember, he came. Remember, he was here. Remember, he ate. He cried. He laughed. Remember? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because why? Because of the suffering of death. So that by grace, God might taste death for everyone. I know it's chaos. And Jesus came and drank death. He came and drank the wrath so he could be forgiven for us. He came to give us life in the chaos. I know it doesn't look like he's the king, but he's the king and he came and he did it and it's finished. He came and he did it. Go back with me to eight. Thanks. So check this out. So here's the thing about Greek. I don't, I'm not saying it's to nerd out. I'm just saying so you know. When the author to Hebrews wrote this letter, he didn't put little numbers in all the verses. And sometimes those little numbers are very, very helpful. They're helpful because I can say, good morning, we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and you know what I'm talking about. That would be confusing. I was like, I don't know, it's like in the middle. If you're in my Bible, it's on page uh, whatever, right? That's not helpful. That, 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 that little thing is helpful. It's a note. It's an address. I can find it. But it wasn't written with those, right? 
Not only that, it wasn't written with punctuation. And what's even harder, they actually wrote all the words together. And so you have to like look at it and figure out where the word is, and it's really hard. Um, but listen. So if we, if, we, if we use the capital B, but, we'll miss what he's saying, I think. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Okay? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. I know it's chaos, but you can see Jesus. You can see him in the midst of the chaos. You can see him in this mess and the beauty and the things he is doing, but we can see him. And as Christians, we get him. And the thing we cling to is him. Is him. It's not just heaven, right? Uh, oh, man, I've heard so many weird things about heaven that have nothing to do with Jesus. Golf forever. I know we have some golfers, but golf forever does not sound like the place that starts with an H that's heaven. It sounds like the other place, right? Maybe that's me. Skiing forever. Cold, gross, yuck. And we move away from that. I, I was listening to, uh, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a country enthusiast, right? And, and Hank Williams, right? Hank Williams wrote this amazing little song. When I get to glory, I'm going to sing, sing, sing. What is it all about? I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to be with Jesus, and I'm going to sing to him forever. Now, I have a big wall of books, and I have no theology books written by Hank Williams on my wall, just so you know. Not even in, like, the heresy section, right? No Hank Williams theology books. But Hank Williams got it, right? I'm not thinking about, ah, I'm going to be okay tomorrow because I'm going to play golf forever. The reality is I get to be with Jesus forever. And though I get a taste, I get uh, what Colossians tells me and, and 1 Corinthians tells me and the beautiful pictures from the book of Revelation and I get uh, uh, all these awesome pictures of how it's going to be, but they're little ones. But the reality is right now I get to cling to and live with Jesus. And he is the reason why I can trust that he is going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be because day in and day out, he keeps putting my life back the way it's supposed to be. Day in and day out, he keeps changing me and growing me and helping me to love him and love others more. And this is a foretaste for me and for you what he's doing on a cosmic level. So though you might not get to see in fullness what he's going to do, what he's doing in your life as he's changing you, helping you to love him and love others more, and changing your life and being with you in the midst of suffering and being with you in the good times and being with you in the hard times and giving you life and how much life has he given us, that is a foretaste for what it's going to be like when he puts everything back the way it's supposed to be. So I can't see it that way yet because it's not yet. But I can see him because it's now but I can see him because it's now. And as a result, uh, we have an indicatively Christian answer for life and an indicatively Christian answer for the hard stuff. And, and it's the only, only deal, right? And it's that we as a people can actually sing songs of praise and lament at the same time. There's nothing weirder than driving home. My parents live up north, driving home in my house in Broadview on 99, and you see brokenness and suffering and sin everywhere as my little babies sleep in their car seats as we drive home. And I know I'm his, and he's mine in that moment. And yet I see a lot of tears that could be wiped from a lot of eyes at that moment. And I know what he's done, and I know what he's doing at that moment. And as Christians, we can sing praise and lament at the same time. Right? 
And what I'm not, I always want to be clear on this stuff. I'm not saying in the midst of the garbage, put on a pretend Sunday best smile. It says weep with the weeping. So in the midst of your suffering, I'm not going to come and be like, oh, put on a smile. I'm going to cry with you. Because we live in a broken world. And I'm going to tell you the gospel. He's going to fix that broken world. Now here's the deal. Sometimes we go praise minus lament, or we go lament minus praise. So we have, if we have praise minus lament, we're going to stay far, far out of texts like this. Let's not talk about it. Stay out of Ecclesiastes, Genesis, Exodus, all the prophets, probably Philippians, book of Revelations, unless you're like into those books about the things or the movies, Thief in the Night. You ever see those? Weird. We stay out of that stuff, Right? Because the reason I come together is so we can sing songs and feel high. So I can sing songs and feel good. And we can have this message that's, Jesus loves you, so I know you lost your job yesterday. But, you know, if you just try harder, you'll get a new one tomorrow. You might not. If you only had enough faith, just put on a smile. Honestly, that, you can't deal with the cross in there. You can't deal with the cross in that world if it's all just happy, happy, joy, joy. Right? So there's no cross. There's no Jesus. Once you get into there, once you get rid of the cross, you have to stop talking about Jesus. Uh, it sort of becomes what's often been called moral therapeutic deism. Be a good person. Jesus will take care of you. And if you're having a hard time, talk to him, and he'll just tell you how great you are at Scrabble or whatever. Right? I'm not going to tell you how great you are at Scrabble. You're not good at Scrabble, and it's okay. Because Jesus loves you, not because you're good at Scrabble. Okay? But at the same time, we can have a lament without praise. And the point of that is that I come up here and tell you, you're a bunch of sinners. So sit in that. Sinners. You spend all your life being like, I'm a sinner. Here I am. I have, no, I have no solution to it. And I spend all my time telling you what you're not doing right as a Christian. Here's the problem with that. Uh, that's a really great in- environment for Pharisees and legalists. Because the thing about a Pharisee, a legalist, uh, religious, I use religion and gospel in contrast. Religion is, I do these things so God will love me. Gospel is, Jesus has done everything so that I don't have to do anything and can respond in grace and mercy with him. The problem with legalists and religious folks and Pharisees is they never actually think you're talking about them. They're always thinking about Aunt Susie and how she really needs to hear the thing about the thing, and she should really get after that, Aunt Susie. You should be a better Christian, Aunt Susie. And they never hear, oh, yeah, that's me. And then people who are legitimate followers of Jesus, if it's just about how cruddy you are all the time, if you're a legitimate follower of Jesus, you just end up beat up. You just end up feeling horrible all the time because no one ever brings the gospel home to life. Yeah, guess what? I'm a failure and so are you. Sorry. Welcome to the team. But my name's written in the book of life. Yeah, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Who will deliver us from this body of death? His name's Jesus. That's who. J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. That's who. Okay? So, yeah, I'm not afraid to talk about sin. I'm not afraid to talk about suffering. I'm not afraid to talk about brokenness. But then there's, like, okay, let's stand up and sing. About what? What am I going to sing about? Yeah, broken, sinning, suffering. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to a broken world. Jesus is God's answer to the brokenness in your life. Jesus is the answer. Okay? And a good test for this is how, how we approach communion. Because it's all praise and no sin. Uh, I, I can't really talk about 
this thing that we do, that we get to participate, this ancient thing that the church has been doing for 2,000 years, that Christians everywhere around the world are doing today, that we get to participate in without talking about a body broken and blood shed for you. Right? I can't, right? Because... I have to talk about my suffering. I have to talk about my brokenness. I have to talk about my sin. I have to talk about Jesus' meeting of those needs and what he does to bring me to himself for his glory. I can't talk about it, so it becomes kind of trite. So maybe we line up and take it, and we're like, oh, that's good, Peter bread. Likewise, if, if it's all lament, your job is to think about how horrible you are before you take communion and how you should try harder next week so you can be like one of the Pharisees. I, I don't think we can say this too often. I'm not even afraid to say this every week. This is not because you had a good week as a Christian. This is not for you because you had an awesome week of not sinning or not being in your brokenness or not being there. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken and bloodshed for you. He who came to deal with my sin and my brokenness to give me life and freedom. And it's for freedom that he set me free. So we have the simultaneous song of joy and lament. Yeah, I consider myself, I consider where, uh, you know, my telephone was more important than Jesus to me this week. Horrible. And then I remember, and that was on the cross 2,000 years ago, and I have freedom, and I have life, and I have Christ, and I have everything. And so I look at it, I acknowledge it, and the power of the reality of who Jesus is, the power of his cross, it helps me say, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with that, I want everything to do with you. And you're the one who's made the way for me to have everything to do with you. Let's party. Let's praise. Let's sing. It's not just, I'm going to feel horrible as I come up here. Man, if this has been a hard week for you, you need to know that Jesus loves you and he's paid the price for all your sin and he's with you and he's in it with you and he cares about you. One of my favorite signs, I drive to Portland every Monday for the rest of my life to learn Greek and Hebrew. And there's this sign at this church in Tacoma. I don't even know what the church is named, but as I'm tired and I'm driving and I'm thinking about five hours in class, there's this giant neon sign at six in the morning when we drive by. And what does it say? Jesus cares about you. Praise the Lord. Jesus cares about you. He cares about your sin. You're not even in your, the, the fighting and the warring against your sin and turning to him alone. You're not alone. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the king of everything. And yet, even in the midst of your suffering, it doesn't always look like he's the king. But Jesus' answer, God's answer for your sin, for your brokenness, for your suffering, for your everything is Jesus. Jesus has done it, will do it, and is going to do it. And when we don't believe this, all we're kind of left with is like an engineering project where um, I see civilization's broken and I want to change it. I see my situations are broken and I want to change it. I see I, myself is broken and I want to change it, right? And so I do everything I can to deal with that. And the only advice I have for other people, like particularly if I don't actually believe Jesus is the answer for everything, I'm there with my neighbor. They're in the midst of their suffering. And I think it's going to be socially awkward to tell them that I believe that Jesus is the answer to their problem and Jesus is the comforter of all things. And, and he'll move. And I'm not saying that he'll make the suffering go away, but I'm saying he's enough in the midst of the suffering. But instead of saying that, I say, oh, that's cool. Have you read this book? This would be socially awkward for me to give you the medicine for your illness. Right? I'll engineer it all day long. And, and when we're only engineering, we look and say, yeah, the world's broken. And so we pick our thing. If the world would only stop 
I mean, we live in a beautiful city where we're, we're after a lot of these problems. But the problem is, it turns out, even if you solve one of the problems, there's 10 more that pop up. Right? And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't get after them. Don't do that. No. But what I'm saying is that you are not the Savior of Seattle. Jesus Christ is the Savior of Seattle. Okay? And your own situations, you look around and you say, man, the grass is really messed up in my yard. My life is jacked up, and I need to get into a different situation. i got to get out of this situation. i got to find a new situation. Okay, get out of that situation. Find a new place to live. Find a new place to go. Whatever. The thing we never stopped to consider was maybe I was the one that messed up the grass. I got a U-Haul. We moved to Topeka, and it turns out the fresh grass got messed up really quick. Huh. So just changing my situation didn't fix it. And we try and fix ourselves. We white-knuckle it. There's a thousand books on Amazon that will tell you how to be a better or whatever. And it turns out if you can kick smoking, you're still there with yourself. My dad's favorite movie, because my dad loves bad movies. You've never heard of it either, by the way. The problem with all these things comes from, the answer to the problem with all these things comes from a movie called Buckaroo Banzai, which I don't even know you should watch. Don't watch it. I don't know. I haven't even watched it, right? Like, don't. But my dad's quoted it my whole life. And the thing, he closes the whole thing down with Buckaroo Banzai says in the camera, no matter where you go, there you are. So you can change civilization, sort of. You can change your situations pretty seriously. You can do everything you can to change you. You can go to Hot Top and become a Scott kid for all I care. But no matter where you go, there you are. No matter where you go, there you are. Only Jesus can change you. And only Jesus is going to change the world. And only Jesus can change your situations. And, and, and there's a lot of things I'm not saying in this, but I'm saying if, we're, if it's only an engineering problem, you're still there, man. You're still you, and you're still there. But Jesus is better. But Jesus is better. Okay, so this means what? This means we get to live in response. We get to live in light of this reality. And yeah, we're after civilization. I, I, I know the world's broken, and I want it to be fixed, but I'm living in response to who he is in light of that. And when I do that, I get to be a foretaste. But he's ultimately the one that's going to do it all. Right? We get to live as a community. See, I love Seattle. But I don't know if you've had this with your neighbors. They're really hard to get to know because the Seattleites, for some reason, we have this thing. Put on T-shirts even now. It's the Seattle cool. Where for some reason we think we're not supposed to say hi to someone for like two years when you live next door to them. Um, maybe that's just me. Uh, but it seems to be reality. But the reality is I don't know actually anyone who's actually wanting that in their life. I don't know anyone who's like, I want a bunch of sort of disenfranchised friends who aren't actually going to pay any attention to me. No, nobody wants that, right? Christ Jesus has welcomed us in. We get to be a people who welcome people in, right? We get to love God and love other people. We get to be light in the darkness in response to the fact that he has done it all, is doing it all, and will do it all. Because Jesus is the one who will fix it. Jesus is the one who will change us. And in all that, we get to be free from our own saviorism. Right? All of a sudden, I'm free to get after the recycling campaign that I care about. I'm, I'm free to get after the neighborhood stuff because I understand that I don't get to bring the kingdom if all my neighbors know each other, but I get to bring light into the darkness if my neighbors know each other and if I'm hospitable and if I'm loving Jesus. But the thing is that it's only Jesus who does that. It's only he who changes our worship by worshiping him. It's only he, he's the only one who's going to help us to serve others. It's only he is going to help us to love the city because honestly... He cares more about your neighbors, you, and the city than you do. How do I know that? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. And I know what he's done, and I know what he's doing, and I know who he is. Let's cling to Jesus. 
He is God's answer to the broken world in which we live. If you don't know Jesus, this is not a self-help program. I'm inviting you into life. He has crushed the beef between us and God by dying on a cross. He's dealt with all our running and all our rebelling and will meet us where we're at in the midst of our suffering. And if you're a Christian, is Jesus the answer or is some kind of engineering? Because the engineering is not going to do it for you. We need to see him clearer. What's amazing is that he's made us a promise. If you draw near to me, if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. And so I don't have like a program or any advice, but I'm telling you right now, if you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. He hears you. He hears you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You care for more for us and for the city and for ourselves than we care. We want to have your heart for the city. We want to have your heart for this church. We want to have your heart for our neighbors. We want to have your heart, and only you can give us that heart. I just thank you that you're a God that we can stand honest in front of you and say, this is breaking my heart. My street is breaking my heart. My block is breaking my heart. Help me, Jesus, to be light in the darkness. And the only reason I can be light in the darkness is because you are light in the darkness. Just help us to be just so lost in how wonderful and amazing and glorious and beautiful you are. And help us to know in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our joy, you are there with us and you are enough. Jesus, we love you and praise things in your name, for your glory and for our joy. Jesus Christ, amen.